Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and you are listening to episode number 86. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I don't exercise because I don't have an hour and a half. Like I get up a little bit late or I'm feeling a little groggy or I need to finish an email. And even though I want to start my day at nine and I'm up at like 7.15, I do the calculations and I'm like, all right, I get into my workout clothes. I start at 7.30, I finish at 8.30. Then I get a shower and shave and then I still got to make breakfast and I have to start at nine and it's a little tight. And so I end up doing nothing. I end up saying, well, maybe I'll do it later in the afternoon. And rarely do I exercise later in the afternoon unless I have a class or an appointment with someone. And so another day passes with no exercise. So I was really struck by a bunch of headlines that appeared in the news around the middle of December of last year of 2014. And here's an example of one from Time Magazine, an article written by Alexandra Sifferlin, introducing the one minute workout. And she writes, you no longer have any excuses. We get it, you're busy, but it turns out you don't need very much time in the gym to improve your health. In fact, it might, take only, it might only take one, yes one, high intensity minute of exercise to do the trick. New research published in the journal PLOS One shows sedentary men and women who did one minute of intense all-out exercise as part of a full 10-minute workout three times a week for six weeks improved their endurance and lowered their blood pressure. So I clicked that blue link published in the journal PLOS One and pulled up the full article called Three Minutes of All-Out Intermittent Exercise Per Week Increases Skeletal Muscle, Muscle Oxidative Capacity and Improves Cardiometabolic Health. So I reached out to the lead investigator on the study, a Canadian professor, Martin Gibala of McMaster University, and we talked about high-intensity interval training, and the physiology of exercise, and what the studies show, and how all of us might get more exercise, get more benefits of fitness in a lot less time than we ever thought. So without further ado, Dr. Martin Gibala, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. Um, especially having you know looked at the the media coverage of your latest research, which uh, suggests that a minute at a time is is enough for folks to uh, to get higher levels of fitness than uh, than perhaps they could have with with sort of hours of of diligence on walking on treadmills. Um, so I'd love I'd love to begin by just finding out a little bit about about you about your interest in exercise physiology and what what made you uh, want to go into this field in the first place. Yeah, probably like a lot of people that get into kinesiology or exercise science. You know, I was interested in athletics as a young person. Played a lot of different sports, things like that, and and so it was a nice. Uh, undergraduate field for me to get into. Uh, originally, I was actually interested in architecture and sort of made this change at the last uh, minute. But I, I really enjoyed kinesiology. It's a multidisciplinary field, but it was really physiology that I was drawn to. And so I, I started to take a number of courses in that area, uh, eventually pursued my master's degree in muscle physiology and a doctorate in nutrition and metabolism. Uh, so that has really been my background stem from personal interest, and then I've just gotten more and more interested in the science as I've uh, progressed through. Mm. So I think what, what what separates your research from a lot that I've seen is even, even though you're looking at a lot of kind of micro measurements, you're you're really looking at a very very big question, right? So you're not you're not sort of like you're you're not interested in sort of tweaking our f- finer understanding. But but really saying like in the big picture, how should we be exercising for maximum benefit? Have you always sort of been interested in sort of the biggest questions in in the field? I, you know, I, I like to tell my students, this would be my graduate students, or we like to think of ourselves sort of of playing in sort of three overlapping pools. And, and so those pools would be, one would be basic mechanisms. You know, as I mentioned, I'm a muscle physiologist, so I am really interested in 
literally the, the molecular signaling pathways and things like that that underlie how skeletal muscle adapts to exercise. Uh, but the other pools would be uh, performance, and so that ranges from athletic performance to you know, how do, uh, how do we make it easier for people to play with their grandkids or walk up a flight of, uh, of, of flight of stairs? And the last pool would be health. You know, so what are some of these health-related markers that can be improved uh, by exercise? So I, I don't think we're the leading experts in any one of those areas, molecular biology or, or health or performance, but I think our studies try to, uh, as you, you know, noted, look at that big picture and, and look at these overlapping circles, and that's where we like to think our, our work is best placed. Great. So the, as, as you noticed, I was, I was watching some of your YouTube videos, and you mentioned that you know, the, the current recommendations for physical exercise put out, I guess, by government bodies, by, you're, you're in Canada, right? Yes. So you know, Canadian government, U.S. government t- tend, tend to be fairly similar, I think, across the board. It's sort of, you know, 30 minutes of like brisk walking three or four times a week. Um, and what, what made you begin to question whether, you know, that was, was gospel or whether there was other ways? Yeah, so a couple points from the outset, and, and you're right, most of the public health guidelines are, are generally similar, you know, calling for around 150 minutes or about two and a half hours a week of moderate intensity exercise or variations on that theme. And I'd certainly like to say from the outset that the public health guidelines are grounded in very good science, and our work is not meant to be an attack on the public health guidelines or, you know, painting it as a, as a black or white issue. But we do know, survey after survey, that the number one cited barrier to lack of regular exercise is lack of time. Now, certainly many people lead busy, time-pressed lives and, and, and feel that way. Uh, and for others, you know, it may be a little bit more of an excuse. We just have to look at the amount of time people spend updating Facebook and things like that. But the reality is that the number one barrier is lack of time. So certainly that has informed some of our studies, or we've been interested in this whole notion of time-efficient exercise. And if we can come up with some strategies that are, are grounded in good science, we, we think that's a, a worthwhile endeavor. Great. So, so when, you, when you look back at sort of the, the arc of research over the last few decades, what, what were the first hints that, that what you call high-intensity uh, interval training um, could, could be more efficient, time-efficient uh, in, in getting people the results they want? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. It's a great question. And, you know, you can go back 100 years, really. Like a lot of things in kinesiology, exercise science, they're rooted in athletics. And so, for example, uh, you know, some of your listeners, I'm sure, are interested in track and field or come from a running background. And there's something known as fartlek training, which literally means uh, speed play uh, in Scandinavia. And that's been around for probably 100 years. And it was just this idea of alternating periods of relatively intense running with periods of uh, lower intensity uh, running for for recovery. And it was a really free form of running uh, out in the trails and things like that. Uh, You know, Roger Bannister famously trained uh, for his assault on the four-minute mile using an interval-based approach. He, uh, you know, 12, 400-meter, 12 one-lap of a track repeats was a very famous workout that he engaged in because he was a very busy uh, medical student. So you can, you know, those are just some anecdotal reports. In the scientific literature, uh, you can certainly go back many decades. And what you'll see is basically clues where sometimes people are interested in, you know, manipulating the exercise dose. So if we did it in a continuous manner, or if we broke it up and did it in an intermittent fashion, and you see some clues from there that, for example, the uh, cardiovascular fitness could be improved or certain components of muscle that we normally associate with prolonged endurance training, those could also be changed by an intermittent-based approach. And so it was really those sorts of studies that got my lab interested in this type of research. Uh, I mentioned I, I did a master's degree and I actually did it at the institution where I am now in McMaster. And my, uh, one of my mentors, Duncan McDougall, he had done some seminal studies looking at brief, intense exercise. And so when I first took up my faculty position about 15 years ago, um, I used to teach a course, I actually still teach it, called 
integrative physiology of human performance. And we would always do a section in that course on training and the best strategies to uh, improve performance and how that changes your physiology. And the idea of interval training was always a, a component of that course, and it was an area that the students were very interested in. And so those, that sort of set the stage for our initial foyer into this area, and our first study was prob- published about uh, 10 years ago uh, now. So that's really, I guess, some of the background to, to what led us to this area. Great. So can, for people who aren't familiar with it, can you define high-intensity interval training, maybe a sort of you know, a, a, a textbook definition, and then just some examples of what it would look like in people's lives? You know, absolutely. I think the simplest definition, the one that we like to, to go with, is just alternating periods of relatively intense effort interspersed by periods of complete rest or lower-intensity exercise for recovery. So it's really just this peaks and valleys uh, notion where you go hard for a minute or, you know, go hard for a period of time uh, and then back off. So some of our research have used, for example, 30 second all out efforts uh, on a bike. There's a certain test in exercise physiology called a Wingate test, and it's the longest 30 seconds of your life where you basically set the workload or the resistance on an exercise bike very, very high and you cycle as hard as you can for 30 minutes, 30 seconds, then you take a rest for a couple of minutes and you repeat that a couple of times. So you might have four 30 second efforts with a few minutes of recovery in between. So it's only two minutes of very hard exercise. That's one model. Uh, Another model that we've used is not these all out protocols, But for example, one minute of relatively hard effort, for example, something that elicits about 90% of your maximal heart rate, you rest for a minute, and then you repeat that 10 times. So there's, there's many different forms of interval training, and we're often asked the question, you know, what's the best type of interval training workout? I think by and large for most people is uh, there's lots of uh, ways that you can get an effective interval training workout, but there's clearly something to this intensity duration trade-off and what we're finding certainly in other groups is that if you're willing to work very very hard you can get away with a surprisingly small total dose of exercise and still reap significant uh, health and fitness benefits now that's not to say it's the way that everyone should train it's not to say that that type of training is necessarily safe or palatable for many people or that it's going to give you all of the benefits of the traditional approach uh, but certainly it is a very effective and it can be a very time efficient way uh, to derive benefits gotcha so um, there are a lot of people whom I've read about and followed over the years, especially sort of in the in the running community, who talk about the idea of slow burn. Um, that you know that we we can adapt to you know improve our speed, improve our stamina by never really um, going to any degree of intensity. Um, help, help me help me navigate an understanding of, uh, you know, is, is that just wrong? Is it suboptimal? Is it a case of context? How, how do I make sense of both of those understandings? As a physiologist and as someone who works in this area, I, I would not be a proponent of that approach for optimal performance. Uh, you know, obviously I look at this from a scientific, from a physiology perspective, uh, and I'm not a coach, and there's lots of things that are going to go into uh, how uh, how someone would coach an athlete, and there's you know we could debate all day about the optimal uh, intensity versus volume approach. Clearly, if you're going to be training uh, an endurance runner or an endurance athlete, there's something to the idea of a certain amount of volume is uh, important. Um, you know, for remodeling of connective tissue, for remodeling lots of the physiological systems. But I'm certainly a proponent of including higher intensity efforts, interval-based approaches. And I think, uh, you know, the vast majority of successful endurance athletes are going to be incorporating some sort of interval-based approach uh, as a component uh, of their overall uh, training 
um, program. You know, I, there's a, a very famous exercise physiologist named David Costo who was actually interested in swimming, and he uh, worked at Ball State University for a long time. He published a paper back in 1991. You know, and swimming is an example of a sport where athletes spend you know, sometimes dozens of hours uh, in in the pool every week uh, to swim an event that might last 30 seconds uh, or a minute. You know, and he made the approach, he said, I just basically don't fundamentally understand how performing hours and hours of exercise at a very submaximal pace that never comes close to the demands of competition uh, is going to be is going to optimally, you know, uh, set that athlete up for the demands of competition. And, and, and I, you know, that, that resonates with me, uh, certainly. I, I think you have to at least push the pace uh, to approach what you're going to see uh, in races in order to have um, optimal success. Great. So one of the things that impressed me about the research that you've done over the past decade is how many different levels of uh, of outcome measure you're looking at. You're, you know, you're not just looking at biomarkers. You're not just looking at, um, you know, people in, in a short-term three-week study in a lab. You're, you're, you're looking at those things, and you're also looking at larger trends, cardiovascular health, um, mortality. Because you know, I'm, I'm in the nutrition area, and there's, there's, you know, obviously a tremendous amount of controversy in the nutritional field about what's the best way to eat. And you see people with, with one type of research, just, you know, sort of either, either just, um, you know, lab science or just a clinical trial or just, um, a, a, um, an ethnographic study claiming that that particular bit of data represents the, the entirety. You, you don't do that. You've, you've really looked at a broad range of reductionist and holistic research, short-term and long-term, to come to your conclusions. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the comment. I certainly don't want to overstate our contribution or, or what we've done. You know, our longest study has been about three months in, in duration, and that's one that we just um, finished. I, I think it is fair to say that we do try to look at lots of different uh, outcome measures, uh, you know, cardiovascular fitness, markers of health. We've done some measures of, you know, blood sugar control in people with diabetes uh, and these molecular markers in muscle uh, as well. You know, we haven't done these large-scale clinical trials, and I think that's an area where uh, this field uh, needs to move. Obviously, clinical trials are extremely demanding to conduct. They're extremely expensive. But, you know, an analogy that I might use for your listeners, I use this one quite a bit, you know, we get that question of how does interval training, especially these low volume or, or small amount of interval training approaches compare to the traditional guidelines. And, you know, and I'll say, well, the, the traditional guidelines are a bit like the long established drug of choice in the marketplace, you know, to use a pharmaceutical analogy. And they're based on very rigorous uh, science. And there's certainly a lot of evidence supporting um, the traditional guidelines. Interval training, it's a bit like the new drug on the market. It, it's showing a lot of promise in early phase trials, but we're nowhere near having the grade A evidence to suggest that you know, a few short bursts of interval training is going to give you all of the benefits of, of the traditional approach. But I think that's where this field needs to move, are these large, robust, randomized clinical trials in large numbers of people with a wide range of outcomes in terms of health, fitness, uh, lots of other markers uh, over a longer period of time. I, I think that's where we need to go. Great. So I've been you know, looking at some of your published papers and I have you know, some background in science, but obviously not, not enough to understand the implications of some of the chemical assays you've done. Um, and I don't think my, you know, some, some of my listeners who are interested will go and find this stuff on their own, but for sort of ordinary folks who just want to be fit and healthy, what are the outcome measures that are important that your research suggests are benefited by the uh, interval training? Certainly. Uh, the biggest one I think would be cardiorespiratory fitness. Uh, and that's, 
you know, we can measure that in the laboratory a bit like, you know, people might be familiar with a stress test or athletes will call it a VO2 max test where we might have people exercise at progressively higher workloads on a bike or on a treadmill. And then we look at the, the literally the, the highest rate of oxygen that their body can consume. And that's a objective measure of your cardiorespiratory fitness or, you know, people think of cardio health. And that's a really good indicator of the rate or the ability of the heart, the lungs, the blood vessels to deliver blood and oxygen throughout the body. And we see that that marker is elevated very, very quickly with interval training, and it can be elevated to the same level of a much higher dose dose rather of traditional endurance training. So another way to look at this is I'll call it the apples to apples approach. So if you compare the same total amount of traditional training, so that's the continuous moderate intensity type approach. And if you were to add that up and compare it to the same total amount of training, but done in an interval based fashion, I think there's a lot of compelling evidence that the cardiorespiratory fitness improvement is greater or superior with interval training. So if you compare on an apples-to-apples basis, interval training elicits superior adaptations. That's great, and that's interesting from a scientific perspective, but from a pragmatic or translational approach, uh, it might be a little bit more difficult because if people are already not doing the public health guidelines and the number one barrier is lack of time, it's unlikely that they're going to do the same total amount of interval training because let's face it, you know, interval training can be in an uncomfortable way to train. It's, it's quite demanding doing these, these intervals. So we're more interested in the apples to oranges comparison where we'll compare a large amount of the traditional approach to a relatively small dose or small amount of the interval-based approach. And what we're finding there is that you can see comparable improvements despite fairly dramatic differences in the total amount of time spent exercising and the total training time commitment. So you can improve your cardiovascular fitness with less time, less total exercise with an interval-based approach. So just just to to unpack my experience of it, let's say I I walk up the stairs briskly and I'm puffing at the top of the stairs. So that's an indication of poor cardiorespiratory function? Um, It's going to depend how quickly you went up those stairs. I think for a lot of individuals, you know, ascending stairs is is going to be uh, difficult. And so, uh, you know, there's... I think the best weather, best way to assess your uh, cardiorespiratory fitness is going to be to actually have a stress test done or get one of these tests done uh, in the laboratory. But let's put it this way. If you were to walk up those few flights of stairs and you might measure your heart rate or how breathless you are or your own perceived exertion, if you were to do two weeks of interval training and then come back and do those stairs, it's going to feel a lot easier uh, to you. And so one indicator of how at least we can improve our cardiorespiratory fitness is if we do the same thing on two different occasions and we feel less out of breath or our average heart rate during that exercise uh, is lower. You know, a classic adaptation to endurance training is that your submaximal heart rate is reduced. What that reflects is the fact that your heart has become a better, stronger pump And so it has to beat fewer times in a minute, for example, to deliver the same amount of blood. So I think it's hard to get an objective measure of your fitness by a one-off test, but you can certainly get a subjective gauge of whether you're going in the right direction or the wrong direction by doing the same thing, you know, separated by a period of time and seeing if you've gotten better or worse uh, in the intervening period. Right. And I guess I'm thinking of my own experience where at one point I was running an hour a day every morning. And when I say run, <laughs> I mean jog. And, right. you know, I'd go up the hill, down the hill. And over the course of like, you know, 18 months, I improved so slightly that, you know, it was it was I was measuring it on like the, the tenths and hundredths of a second <laughs> on the on the stopwatch. 
And I wasn't feeling a lot better when I was doing it. I, you know, I didn't reach that point where I'm, you know, I'm doing the Rocky on top of uh, the the art museum. I, right. Every time I came home, I was like, you know, just I f- find me a, you know, a cool puddle to, to lie down in. And so that's been my experience largely of the, the training that I was that I was taught to do for cardio health. Now, it didn't occur to me at that point that 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 might be an indication that I could I could be doing something more efficiently. I was still thinking, well, you know, they say walking is good. So this is this must be good for me um, anyway. And you're saying, you know, that it definitely is. But there are other improvements to be had. So you're saying if, if I if I then went instead of doing the hour run, if I if I sort of exerted for 30 seconds and then rested for 30 seconds, I, I might have done the same um, distance in about the same time, but I would have gotten uh, a higher degree of, of cardiospiratory fitness from it. Absolutely. And, you know, you raise a really good point and that's, you know, when we talk about uh, exercise, we often use these sweeping generalities, but for a lot of people, they're interested in exercise for a very specific reason, to enhance their performance, to reduce their blood sugar levels, perhaps to change their weight or their, or their body composition. And so in the big picture, we're just trying to get people to move more, right? Like that's probably one of the greatest public health challenges is just this, the extent of, of sedentary behavior or sedentary living right now because of, you know, so many reasons that your listeners would be uh, familiar with, but we've just made it so easy. We've built sedentariness into our lives that literally, you know, people can take maybe a thousand steps in a day and, and, and that's it. So our biggest public health challenge is just getting people to move more. And we know that that's also going to confer the greatest extent of benefit. You know, when we look at these large epidemiological studies, when people go from the absolute sedentary behavior, the lowest fitness levels, just getting them to that next level, which is, you know, taking a couple of walks and things like that, that has the greatest overall amount of change. But for people who are already at a reasonable fitness level, they want to take it to the next level. Uh, Again, I, I, I would come back to this idea that intervals can be a very effective way uh, to, to, to do that. There was a recent study, this was a randomized clinical trial, it wasn't a, a very large study, but it was a very well-designed study where they were looking at people who were doing the public health guidelines, so they were basically doing, you know, a couple of hours of exercise per week, but these were people who had type 2 diabetes. And the question that the investigators were asking was, what if we have people walk at a constant level or we have them walk in an interval-based approach. So this is literally just walking a little faster than they're normally doing and then backing off or slowing it down a little bit. They weren't these sweeping changes in intensity, like they weren't sprinting down the block. It was literally just a very slight peak and a very slight valley as opposed to walking at a continuous pace. When they looked at four months of this type of training, what they found was the people that did the interval-based approach had a greater improvement in their fitness, they had a greater reduction in their blood sugar levels, and they had a greater favorable change in their body composition. So the conclusion from the study was taking interval-based approach, even if it's very modest intervals, was superior to the continuous uh, approach. That's a fairly striking finding for, you know, a, a lot of individuals. Those are mainly uh, clinical or health markers, but really important ones. And it, it makes the point that, you know, interval training doesn't have to be, or the, the only type of interval training is not just exercising at a breakneck pace. There's many different ways that you can do it. Hmm. Well, it, it, it makes sense to me, you know, as, as I study nutrition, one of the things I'm always looking for as a, a kind of standard is like human evolution, like what would have made sense for us. And so when I think about exercise, like, you know, so we live in this weird blip of history where we have more calories than we know what to do with. But for most of human history, that wasn't really the case. So there wouldn't have been people, you know, cavemen getting out and jogging around the savanna for, <laughs> for an hour in the morning just to, you know, to burn off that mastodon. So when I think about like the types of uh, exercise regimens that human beings 
have have evolved successfully with. I'm thinking about sort of agricultural, where you know I do some farming, so it's basically you know a lot of light work and then occasionally lifting a rock or digging something or you know a little burst of of, of heaviness. Um, or I'm imagining sort of the hunt, which was um, you know a a very short burst of 100% intensity um, with with long periods of waiting and doing nothing. Uh, you're right. You know, it's also been pointed out that if you look at how children play in the park, it more resembles an interval-based approach. And so in some ways, it's, you know, a more natural form of exercise as your natural form of, of physical activity. There's not a lot of kids that will go out and, you know, jog around the playground at a moderate pace for 30 minutes. They sort of run and jump and things like that. So I, I think there are versions on, on, on the theme, but it, it's a very important point that, uh, that you raise. So for, for me, uh, just knowing that 10 minutes or 15 minutes might be enough could be the difference between me exercising at all and not like this. Like today, I have three calls. Uh, they're, you know, two hours apart. So I don't really want to run and get sweaty. I woke up kind of late. I woke up at uh, like quarter to eight. And I thought, well, if I have to go do my hour, that's going to be quarter to nine. Then I got to shower. Then I got to make breakfast, clean up breakfast. Like it's pushing it. I don't want to come rushing into this interview you know, with, with that kind of, uh, of frantic energy. But if you tell me that, that, that there's ways in which I could have accomplished the same goals in 15 minutes from quarter of eight to eight, I would have done it. Bingo. And I think that's a really important message from our research and one that we try to stress. You know, again, let's get away from this, what's better or worse, but making this point that if you only have sometimes... 10 minutes to train or 15 minutes to train some or many people will blow it off because they just think, you know what? I don't have time to get a quality workout within that time frame. And if there's a takeaway from our research is that no, you absolutely can get in a high quality workout in a short period uh, of, of time. You know, is it going to give you all of the benefits of an hour? Well, it depends what you would have done in that hour. You know, let's just suffice to say that 10, 15 minutes, whatever the period of time, uh, you can do uh, some interval exercise, and that's definitely going to be beneficial. So what, one of the, the themes of your recent research, I think, has been how low can we go? And there was a study that was uh, picked up by the press um, in, I guess, what you published in, in, in November, um, that you're saying three minutes a week improves yeah. a bunch of stuff. You know, and this is where it starts to, you know, go into infomercial type uh, commercial. And, you, you, you know, you won't see me on late night television trying to sell this uh, approach. But we, we have been interested in this idea of how low can you go. And it's, again, this version on, or variation on a theme of if you're willing to go very, very intense, you can get away with a very surprisingly small dose of exercise. And one, you know, one of the things we were, we were sensitive to, you know, your research evolves, right? And so uh, that, that 30 second model that I had talked about before, where people would ride a bike for 30 seconds, take four minutes of recovery, repeat that four or five times. To do that workout, it still takes about 25 minutes and probably close to 30 minutes when you add a few minutes of warm up and cool down. And so, you know, people would raise the criticism. It's a very valid one. Well, you know, that's not that different from the lower end of the public health guidelines. Certainly the ACSM guidelines in the United States where, you know, they generally recommend 150 minutes a week or 75 minutes a week of more vigorous exercise. That's only three 25-minute workouts a week. And so we said, okay, well, let's even try and cut that down further. And so we devised a workout that involves a two-minute warm-up, a five-minute period of interval training, but within that period, it's three 20-second all-out efforts. So that's where the one minute of very hard exercise comes in, and then a three-minute cool-down. So basically a two-minute warm-up, five minutes of intervals that involves three 20-second hard efforts, and a three-minute cool-down. So the total time commitment is 10 minutes, but within that, it's only one minute of hard exercise. And we had people do that three times per week. 
So it's three minutes of exercise within the total time commitment, including warm up and cool down of 30 minutes a week. And what we found after six weeks of that type of training, we saw a 12% improvement in people's cardiorespiratory fitness. That is a massive improvement in fitness, especially given the very small time commitment that was involved. We also saw a reduction in people's blood pressure, and we also saw some improvements in how their bodies use blood sugars, which is obviously very important for your risk for diabetes. So that was the study that really, you know, it, the, the media attention sort of comes and goes, but this idea of time efficient exercise and this idea of the, the one minute workout that it was dubbed, uh, that, you know, that attracted a, a couple of headlines. And so when I do these media interviews, I'm always trying to careful to say, yes, that's indeed what the study showed, but we're not saying that people should only train for a minute or week or that it should replace the public health guidelines. But it is a very striking example of the potency of short, intense bouts of exercise. Right. Well, I guess, I guess your experience with the media has got to be sort of like high intensity interest. <laughs> Where <are> they? <laughs> for, for sure. Someone told me, you know, if I ever write a book, it should be that uh, life is an interval exercise, you know, and, and it's, it's a great comment because, you know, we are very, uh, you know, it, it can be very intense sometimes and, 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 and we go through periods uh, like that. But Certainly, you know, uh, it, uh, the way that I exercise should not necessarily be the way that everyone else exercises. But, I, you know, I'm a pretty busy individual. Sounds like you are, too. I'm sure many of your listeners are as well. And so I've adopted an interval-based approach in a lot of my own uh, fitness uh, pursuits. Uh, you know, today it's, uh, I think, minus 27 degrees outside where I am. So it's, it's pretty cold today. So I'm doing some stationary cycling inside for my workout. And I hate to get on a bike and ride at the same workload setting for a period of time. So almost all of my indoor cycling uh, is an interval-based approach just because I perceive it as more enjoyable uh, and I know it's a very effective way uh, to go. Uh, But, you know, one of the things we haven't touched on but is an important area is this whole how do people perceive the exercise? Do they like it or not? And the best type of exercise for someone is going to be what they're likely to stick with uh, over the long term. And so for some people, they don't like intervals, right? It, it, as I mentioned, uh, it's easy to talk about these short, intense uh, exercises in the abstract, but they they hurt when you do them, or it can be a more uncomfortable way to train. Uh, and so from a, you know, I've, I've become very careful that I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a muscle physiologist, but when I talk to my health psychology colleagues, there's certainly a segment of the population that find intervals to be more enjoyable. And so what that means is even they're, they're willing to put up with the temporary discomfort of the intervals because they know they can get away with less total exercise. There's other people that don't like intervals at all. And so, you know, we can stand there until we're blue in the face and say intervals are great, but if people aren't going to listen to that and are unlikely to adopt that type of training, then it's not for them. And so it comes back to one of the things we touched on at the beginning, and that's, you know, variety is going to be good and finding an exercise that that works for you uh, is good. One of the things about intervals is that they're infinitely variable. There's many different ways to do it, whereas with continuous modern intensity training, there's only so many ways that you can jump on a treadmill set it at a given speed and jog at a moderate pace for an hour, whereas with intervals, you can vary it up a lot. And so perhaps for at least some people, uh, they're going to find that variety uh, more enjoyable, more engaging, and perhaps you're going to stick with it over the longer term. Mm. So I think a a treadmill, just when I think about the equipment, is really ill-equipped for intervals compared to a bicycle where you're completely controlling the pedal speed or, uh, you know, I guess an elliptical or even just can, can you do interval training without machines? Uh, yes, you can. You know, just to go to the point about the treadmill, I, I, you know, sometimes it's a little harder to make the adjustments on a treadmill and the speed doesn't change uh, as quickly. But I think you can certainly use a treadmill to do an interval based uh, approach. Um, you know, you, you raise a good point And that's that I think interval training can be applied to many different modes of exercise. One of the things that we're interested in right now uh, is stair climbing because for a lot of people, uh, stairs are widely available. A lot of people live in apartments. Even if you're in a you know two or three story home, you have a couple of flights of stairs in your house. Many, many people work in offices. And so we think that's a very 
practical or potentially translatable form of interval training is doing a couple of flights of stairs. And so now we're starting to do some of these rigorous scientific measurements uh, to quantify, uh, you know, what's it like to do 20-second stair climbing a couple of times? You know, what sort of benefits does that confer? But any type of traditional cardio exercise that we think of, even swimming or rowing or cycling, elliptical, all of those can be applied or an interval-based approach can be applied uh, to those forms of exercise. So, so I'm thinking now to my own limited understanding of, of exercise and intensity, and it, it, the, the entirety of my sophistication around this topic has to do with aerobic versus anaerobic, um, which I guess is, you know, how are the muscles burning the fuel to get the job done? And so it is, right. is interval training basically saying anaerobic, um, you know, to sprints so that the, the length of time that I do it has to be um, limited by how long I can go anaerobically? That would sort of be the traditional dogma that, you know, sprints are powered by anaerobic or uh, energy that doesn't use oxygen uh, and long endurance type training is powered by aerobic metabolism. Um, that's a very simplified way to, to look at it. And probably the best thing that I could say is repeated sprints are a very aerobic stimulus. So while a single sprint is going to derive most of its energy, it's going to be powered by anaerobic metabolism. As soon as you start to do repeated sprints or repeated high-intensity efforts, most of the energy to power those movements or those types of exercises is going to come from aerobic metabolism. And that surprises a lot of people. It certainly surprises my students, even third and fourth year kinesiology exercise science students when we introduce that concept, but that's certainly what the science tells us. So when we do these very careful measurements, uh, I'm very confident in saying that repeated sprints are mainly powered by aerobic metabolism. And so once you get over that hurdle, or you can wrap your mind around that, it's really not that surprising then that repeated sprints may improve our aerobic energy supply system. So your cardiorespiratory endurance, your cardiorespiratory fitness, can improve by doing some short repeated sprints. Your heart can remodel, your blood vessels can remodel, your muscles get better at utilizing the, uh, the oxygen. All of those aerobic components uh, are enhanced by repeated sprints. So for someone who, who just wants to be fitter, so I'll take myself, um, you know, I'd love to have more stamina and the I play two or three seasons of Ultimate Frisbee and I'm playing the people I'm playing against get younger and younger every year. <laughs> and I find myself sort of gasping or giving up a goal because I just don't have it in me to, to chase them down. Um, I'd like to lose a little weight around the middle and I'd like to, you know, live to 120 um, <laughs> And, you know, I've been taught that various forms of exercise will get me there. And I've also found that the results, I'm, like, like I'm really big on obvious rewards. Like if I can do 10 push-ups today and tomorrow I can do 12, then I go, oh, that worked. So w without getting the stress test or doing kind of the, the, the deep physiological assays that, you, that you're doing, what, what would be my experience of improvement? Let's say if I did, the, you know, if I was one of those six-week um, participants in the one, one minute, uh, three times a week, what would my subjective experience or things that I could measure be that would tell me I'm on the right track? Yeah, well, I'd come back to, you know, things. So even if you're not going to measure uh, your, your submaximal heart rate, although today with all of the apps on iPhones and things like Fitbits and that, you know, people are actually very interested in, in tracking their, their progress. And so if you're that type of individual, who wants some sort of objective or measurable feedback, I think many of these phone apps or Fitbit type devices could be very uh, effective. So, what, so what for is, example... What exactly yeah. am I measuring if I'm measuring suboptimal heart rate? So basically, yeah. how's this? To, to do a certain amount of work, so to run at a certain speed or to ride your bike at a certain pace, that demands that your heart works at a certain level or your cardiac output, literally the amount of blood coming out of your heart every minute needs to be a set amount. Let's say that's 10. It doesn't even matter what the units are, but basically you need 
10 units of blood coming out of your heart every minute in order to power that pace. You know, how we get blood out of our heart is it's going to depend on how fast the heart's beating and how much blood comes out with each beat. So that's your heart rate and something known as your stroke volume. If your heart becomes a better pump, every time it contracts, it's able to send out more blood with that contraction or more blood for a given heartbeat. And so we will measure an improvement in heart function by the fact that the heart has to beat fewer times. Your submaximal heart rate during exercise is reduced the more fit you are because the heart has become a better, stronger pump. It literally ejects or sends out more blood uh, with each beat. And so that's why submaximal heart rate is a very common measure of, of fitness. We'll put someone on a treadmill or on a bike at a given pace before and after a training program, for example, and we'll measure their submaximal heart rate. And if their submaximal heart rate is reduced, we know that the only other thing that could have changed to allow that is that their heart got better as a pump. And so it improved its ability to pump blood, and that's associated with many different uh, health, uh, health benefits. Gotcha. So that's different from resting heart rate. It, it is, but it's also, uh, you can apply the same thing. You know, rest is just a, a very uh, low effort condition, if you will, but it's the exact same analogy. Your heart has to beat fewer times at rest the more fit you are. So, you know, barring any sort of odd medical condition, by and large, people that have the lowest resting heart rates, you know, probably people that have the lowest resting heart rates are elite endurance athletes. You know, a, a typical resting heart rate is around 70 beats per minute. Very elite cross-country skiers, cyclists, some of them have resting heart rates of 40 beats per minute. Um, the reason it's so low is that even when their heart's at rest, it ejects a lot of blood with each beat because it's such a big, strong, powerful pump. And so it doesn't have to beat that many times even to sustain resting metabolism. So when they go to different submaximal work rates, again, the heartbeat is relatively low uh, compared to some other individuals. So rest is just a manifestation of what we see at, at submaximal exercise. Got it. And is, uh, in, in my layman's understanding, um, you know, the heart is like, you know, a car engine where it's got so many revs on it before it gives out. Is that is that true? So if my resting heart rate comes down to 40, that that could be related to longevity? Yeah, it can be. You know, sometimes uh, people will, will use that analogy in reverse and they'll say, you know, I only have so many heartbeats in me. So why would I ever want to, you know, rev it up during exercise? But I think the payoff is that, you know, you can rev it up during exercise for that 30 minutes a day. But the 23 and a half other hours of the day, it's beating slower. So, you know, if it is, in fact, that we get a certain number of heartbeats over the course of our life, uh, you know, a, a an exercise person is, is going to do better in the long run because most of the time uh, their heart is going to be beating slower uh, because uh, they've made the heart a better, stronger pump. Right. Also, nobody buys a Ferrari to keep it in the garage, right? <laughs> <laughs> You want to use it, don't you? Have, have a little respect for this miraculous body, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so if I um, notice that I'm, you know, if I put on a heart rate monitor and I go for my usual jog and I notice that, you know, after 18 months, the numbers are pretty much the same and I switch to the interval training, I'll know I'm successful when either the heart rate goes down for that same jog or if I maintain the heart rate, that I get, I get the jog or the run done faster, right? That I've just exactly. increased efficiency. Exactly. So you can, you know, for a given heart rate, you can sustain a higher pace. You can run a faster race, for example, or if you do the same task, uh, you're going to do that with less effort and you're going to perceive that because your heart rate is lower. You're going to be, you know, and your other systems respond the same, uh, the same way. So other systems are, are stressed less uh, for a given, uh, a, a given task. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm, I'm uh, already thinking about going out and doing my my three minute my three minutes a week. And and so, so some part of me um, is like, well, if three minutes is good, then six minutes is better. And then 12, like I'm already starting to ramp back up. Is there any research on dose response where there's a point at which 
increasing doesn't improve it much or decreasing really causes a drop off in effectiveness? I, you know, I, I, I guess there's a couple of ways to, to look at that. Uh, one, I would come back to this idea that, you know, for, for most people, of course, we're worried about how little people are doing. And so there hasn't been a lot of dose response stuff in very unfit individuals. We can certainly take clues uh, from highly trained athletes who, you know, are already doing a high volume of training and they're at risk for uh, overtraining. Uh, you know, there's a big debate about uh, whether it's the total volume of training that leads to overtraining or is it the intensity of training. I, I think uh, suffice to say you need to come back to this intensity duration uh, trade-off. And so if you're going to do that one-minute workout that we talked about, those three 20-second uh, efforts, you know, I, I, I can't stress enough how demanding those 20 second efforts are. And so even though in theory you might be saying, well, if I'm going to do three of those, I could, you know, maybe do six or nine. They're very, very demanding intervals. And so on a regular basis, I think it's unlikely uh, that people, you know, unless you're the elite athlete, the highly motivated individual who's only training for, uh, for performance, most individuals, frankly, aren't going to want to do a lot more of those high intensity efforts because they are very mentally uh, uh, demanding. Um, the more fit you get, you know, you do start to, you know, you, you get less return on your investment, unfortunately. There's, there's going to be a, a ceiling for, for all of us. Uh, and so for the more fit individuals, um, you know, it, it, you're going to see less improvement for a given amount uh, of, of, of training. But, you know, that, that's just the way it is. So for, for folks who are not maybe used to training and paying attention to their body and, and getting auto feedback. How do you help people um, evaluate intensity? So if you're saying yeah, it's a really, yeah, go yeah ahead. no, it's, it, it's a great question. And our, our initial um, advice is just sort of get out of your comfort zone. You know, I may have used that phrase before. And, and so for the, for the person, your only exercise is walking around the block. You know, you walk around, walk the dog around the block a few times a week. For you, an interval training session could be, you know what, for those next two light posts, I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to push myself a little bit more so I'll feel subjectively. I'm going to be a little bit more out of breath. If I'm talking to my partner, it might be a little bit more uh, difficult to, to talk to them. I might feel my heart beating a little bit faster uh, in my chest. And then after those two light posts, I'm going to back off and I'm actually going to walk a little slower than I normally do. You know, and you repeat that a couple of times as you go around the block. Um, as simple as that sounds, that's an interval training session uh, for that individual. Uh, so it can be as simple as that. Like I say, just getting out of your comfort zone and then backing off. That's about as easy as, as we can uh, you know, put it to try to, to, to get someone uh, starting into this. And from there, obviously, then some people are very interested in tracking heart rate or you know, that you can, you can make it very objective. Or for athletes, we can track their, the lactate levels in their blood and use all of these other markers. But that get out of your comfort zone is a, is a good uh, initial suggestion for someone who wants to, uh, to try it. And certainly to try and combat this notion that interval training is just pedaling your heart out on a bike or running as sprinting as fast as you can. You know, the, the, that's sort of the extreme of interval training. And there's uh, a, a lot of other forms of modified interval training that are not just these all-out breakneck paces, which, as I mentioned, may not be suitable uh, for a number of individuals. Gotcha. So I, I have a, a question. I don't know if there's you know, any research on it. It might come a little bit out of left field, but I, um, I come to this question from my own um, study of some forms of Russian martial art where they're very interested in breathing and breath work. And so to, to increase intensity, not by, simply by increasing the muscular expenditure, but by breath holds or uh, slowing down breathing, breathing for like 10, you know, 10 steps. Do you have any um, data or thoughts on uh, increasing intensity by breathing less? I, I don't have any data on it from our own lab, but certainly uh, it, it's not surprising to me, and, and I know of some work that has, for example, um, manipulated breathing rate either 
fast or slow. So either hyperventilating, breathing very fast in and out prior to exercise or trying to, to slow it down. Uh, or respiratory training, for example, where people put a little tube in their mouth and it might be a very narrow tube. You can imagine trying to exercise while you're breathing through a straw that's going to restrict the amount uh, of air and oxygen that's uh, coming in uh, to your lungs. So really these are variations on alterating or trying to manipulate oxygen availability, you know, not unlike what happens when people go to altitude. So the, the, the general concept of trying to alter breathing for the purposes of altering the air and oxygen that's available to your body, um, I think that's a valid concept, certainly, and you could make it relatively more stressful by reducing breathing rate and air, uh, or you could make it a little bit easier, for example, by breathing in oxygen that's higher than we typically have uh, in the room. You know, if people go to the hospital, they might be put on 100% oxygen or a, a higher percentage of oxygen, and that's actually going to make it a little bit easier because with every breath, you're not getting 21% oxygen, you might be getting 30 or 35%. Gotcha. Um, so I guess sort of... Um one of the big things that people are really concerned about, you know, that we'll, we'll, I'll say that I want to, you know, live to 120 and performance sports, but bottom line, a lot of the time, my motivation for exercise is I just want to look a little better. Do, is there, mm -hmm. is there any data on uh, interval training and weight loss and, and yeah, there is. musculature? You know, yeah. The, so I'll tackle the weight loss or body composition issue first. And, you know, my standard line to this is it's, as you would well know from your interest in nutrition in that, it's, it's much easier to control body weight, body fatness by the energy inside of the equation than the energy out. So it's much easier to try and regulate food intake, types of food, amount of food, as opposed to burning off calories with exercise. Because the reality is, you know, the amount of calories that we burn with exercise, it can be significant, but it's, it's, you know, modest. You have just have to do the math in terms of the amount of calories in a donut and then what type of exercise it might take in order to burn off that donut. So that would be point number one is it's, it's easier to regulate the energy inside than the energy out. That being said, interval training can be an effective way to burn calories. Uh, you know, people will say, well, boy, it's, you know, how, how many calories can you burn when you're exercising for a minute or, you know, three of those 20-second efforts? Uh, what uh, we find, and we've done these sorts of measurements in our laboratory, is there really is something to the idea of afterburn that personal trainers were talk about or this idea of a heightened metabolism or heightened metabolic rate in recovery. Uh, you, you know, exercise training may not change your resting metabolism per se, but it does change transiently or for a brief period of time the amount of calories that you burn in recovery. And so that idea of afterburn or this extra calorie burning that you have in recovery, that is greater after an interval session compared to a more traditional moderate-based approach. So, you know, to sum up or try and put in uh, a, a, a phrase that, that maybe is understandable, you get these small, transient elevations in energy burning and recovery, but they last a little bit longer after intervals. And so if you add that up over time, you can have significant calorie burning with an interval-based approach. Mm -hmm. Which I guess makes sense if you live in a, uh, an environment of caloric scarcity that you would burn, you'd, you'd do the interval trainings to, to score a big caloric bonus, right? To bring down a, a buck or something. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's right. And, you know, to go to the issue of, um, you know, body composition or, uh, you know, thing, things like that, um, in order to, you know, you, you don't see a lot of muscle building uh, with interval-based approaches unless it has some sort of strengthening element to it. So, you know, if, if you look at the top worldwide fitness trends for 2015, the number one is body weight training. You know, just this idea of traditional calisthenic type exercises, push-ups, wall squats, things like that. Certainly, you know, that could be viewed as a form of interval training rather than doing, uh, doing traditional cardio type exercises like running and swimming. You're using uh, interval-based approach 
with body strengthening exercises, that type of interval training can be effective to improve strength, to put on some muscle mass, which we know is, is very, uh, you know, that can be very positive, especially as we, uh, as, as we age. So I think the short answer is that interval training can be effective both to burn calories, uh, to remodel your body composition, uh, to cause changes in body fatness, uh, but still the energy in or controlling the food side is, uh, is going to be the, uh, the, 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 the greater um, part of that equation. Right on. So, sort of final final question is your your research um, fits right in with a uh, a trend right now I'll call sort of like body hacking that seems seems to have you know to have developed over the last few years where people are really interested in all sorts of experiments and now we have all these um, body monitors. Um, do you have thoughts about the the body hacking trend? Um, and how, how your research either fits into it or maybe doesn't in some ways? I, I get, you know, I, I, um, not particularly, I'm not trying to, to dodge or hedge the question. You know, I can really only talk about, uh, uh, interval training per se. I, 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 you know, people talk about, is it, is it a fad? Is it here to stay? I, I, I think there's, there's lots of, you know, you might call them fads or ways to, to train. And you look at things like, uh, you know, CrossFit, P90X, Zumba, all of those things, you know, people can quibble over about whether they're fads or whether they're here to stay, whether they're approaches. But I think all of those are variations on a theme, which is high intensity exercise or high intensity interval exercise. I do think high intensity interval exercise as a concept has staying power and, and there's just many different forms or approaches uh, that you can utilize and those will come and go or come in and out of flavor but I think the general idea of the concept of alternating periods of high and low intensity exercise uh, is it beneficial uh, that that's here to stay and there's still a lot of you know interesting questions that I think we have to address especially around, you know, long-term measures uh, of, our, of our health. You know, what are the implications of this type of training for long-term blood pressure control, for long-term risks uh, of diabetes, things like that. You know, one of the last points that we really haven't touched on is, is where this field is going. In the, in the field of exercise, uh, there's something known as uh, metabolomics, which is really just trying to get uh, a chemical signature, a chemical fingerprint, from a blood sample, for example, uh, to put it in context, uh, you know, if in the in the field of cancer biology, uh, you know, oncologists now, when they're treating cancer, may, for example, biopsy a tumor, and they will tailorize or try to individualize an approach to cancer treatment because they know certain tumors respond to certain medications in certain ways. We're a long ways off from that in the exercise field, but you can imagine this idea that people respond differently to different forms of exercise. So I think we're going to get better at individualizing the exercise prescription. And so we might, for example, you may go into a doctor's office, they take a blood sample from you. Based on your individual chemical or metabolomic signature, the physician, the exercise physiologist might be able to say, you know what, given that signature, we know that people tend to respond more to this type of exercise. For example, a more interval-based high-intensity approach as opposed to the traditional approach. Another person, they may not respond well to interval training based on their own biology. And so I think we're going to get better at being able to individualize that approach because clearly there's people that follow the public health guidelines very rigorously and they don't see much of a change. Or in fact, there's a very small segment of the population that may get worse in a couple of measures. And that's very frustrating. And, you know, they're told, well, you're probably not doing it right. You're not doing it long enough. But it may just be that they're very poor responders to the traditional approach. So to come back to your original question, I think there's still a lot of value in studying different ways that we can exercise, different adaptations to different training principles, and that will help people in the long run. That sounds very exciting. And I can just imagine the app developers you know, t taking this information and coming up with something that just tells you in your ear, you know, when to run, when to walk, when to drop and give me 20. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it sounds a little crazy, but I, I, I do think the sky's the limit. And, and certainly it's not uh, out of the realm of possibility at all. And these studies are, are literally being done right now where they're taking uh, blood samples. Uh, you know, it, it may progress to saliva samples, right? So we don't have to take an inv- invasive measure from your blood and get a, a better picture of an individual and be able to say, you know what, this is may, what may work for you. Uh, this might not work for you and, and get better at individualizing that exercise approach. Wow, very, very exciting. Is, and um, what's, what's up for you in your lab in the next couple of years? You know, one of the things that we're interested in is potential sex-based differences. So in some of our studies, as well as some work from other laboratories, uh, we see that women, uh, again, generally speaking, do not respond as well in some uh, measures, and particularly around some of the measures of blood sugar control. Uh, you know, they still respond to interval training, but they don't respond to the same extent uh, as men. Uh, so we're trying to look at, you know, is that true or not? And part of it is basically how you pick the subjects. So we're trying to be very careful in terms of, for example, matching the fitness levels of the participants when they, when they start out. And that's, that's actually harder to do than it sounds because, for example, women on average have higher body fat percentages for reproductive reasons. And so rather than equating their fitness to their overall body mass, you do it just to their fat-free mass. And you have to control things like menstrual cycle phase to do these uh, measurements properly. So that's an area that we're interested in is, in fact, are there sex-based differences uh, or not? Um, another area that we're uh, going to be uh, looking at, you know, is just trying to apply this type of training uh, to different populations, right? I, I mentioned the small study that we've done with type 2 diabetes. Uh, a colleague of mine, Maureen McDonald, uh, just did a study uh, in people with uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, so basically cardiac rehabilitation programs, and so starting to look at different populations uh, that this uh, research or interval training may be suitable for and those that might not be suitable for. Those are two areas that, uh, that we're interested in, and the final one would, would be the, the role of nutrition. So as we start to manipulate uh, carbohydrate availability or giving people protein after exercise, how does that change the adaptations that we see uh, to interval training? Wow. All, all exciting stuff. Well, I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to be on with you. Uh, you know, I hope some of, uh, at least some of that, what, what, what I said may be of interest to some of uh, your listeners, but uh, I appreciate your, your interest in our, in our research. Well, I'll tell you, at, at the very least, I'm going to go run for 20 seconds uh, three times this afternoon. Give it a try. I hope it works out. Right. Well, uh, Dr. Martin Gibala, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks a lot for having me on. Be well. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Martin Gibala. I hope you get out there and start trying to include a little HIIT in your own exercise regimen. If you do, drop me a note on the blog and let me know what you think. And if you if you keep it up, if you start doing Fitbit with it, or a heart rate monitor, or just a sort of subjective noting your uh, fitness improvements, I would love to hear if you find this works for you. So coming up next week, we're going to continue talking about fitness with um, the author of Fit Quickies, Lanny Mulrath. We're going to be talking about how exercise is often the missing piece in larger lifestyle changes. We'll also be talking about some concepts in her new upcoming book, The Plant-Based Journey. She is really an expert coach. She is brilliant at taking someone where they are and showing them the next step on their journey to better health. So I hope you'll join me for that. If you enjoy the podcast, you can, of course, spread it on social media, email your friends, uh, get tattoos. You can also help out a lot by leaving a review on iTunes so that other people can find it when they're searching for health and wellness podcasts. And you can go out and lead an exemplary life and show people how much fun it is to plant yourself. So thanks a lot and be well, my friends.